Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Man, it is an exciting week here at Keystone. Uh, I was out in the construction zone earlier this week, took this picture for you. Uh, this is the old children's ministry. We're obviously no longer using it because we decided free-range children's ministry was not a great plan. Uh, yeah, but things are changing, and it is so exciting. And along with that, uh, we are launching into a new series this week, eight weeks long, called The Story of Us, and with our time together in this room, I'm going to be unpacking what I believe to be the eight most important ideas in the New Testament of the Bible. And, and what's interesting is, like, when I first learned each of these eight things, I was mad, because I grew up in church, and I somehow missed it. In fact, I thought about calling this series, actually even made a logo for it, Things I Wish I Knew Before I Knew Them. Thank you, right? And I brought it to the programming team, and they all looked at me and said, Absolutely not. So I said, story of us. There it is. Um, just a disclaimer, uh, this could be a hundred-week series because there are so many key ideas that surface in the New Testament. So these are the, the eight most important ideas according to me. So that's how that goes. Um, you also know you've been invited to read the entire New Testament with us uh, as we kind of go through the material. You don't have to read the New Testament to get something out of the weekend experiences, but great opportunity, especially if you've never done it. Uh, I had lunch with a friend uh, who, you know, attends Keystone, and he said he's never really read the New Testament of the Bible, but he's not even really sure he believes it. And I said, well, that's no reason not to read it. You don't read anything because you believe it. You read stuff to decide if you believe it. And he got real quiet, and he bought a book. So there you go. Yeah. So, and uh, we have restocked again. You can grab one on your way out, but I think it's going to be an incredible experience together. So before we dig into our conversation for today, I want to show you kind of what the New Testament looks like from 50,000 feet. So I made a few slides. Uh, these are the books of the New Testament. Uh, many, many of these were letters uh, written by different people that circulated in the early church to sort of talk about who, who Jesus was and what he had done. But there's three different types of literature that make up the New Testament. Uh, the first section there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the Jesus material. That's where you get all the stories about Jesus, who he, did, who he was, what he said, and what he did. Uh, they're also called the Gospels, which means good news. Um, and just to warn you in advance, if you've never read it, uh, you get done with like Matthew, and Jesus has died and has risen, and then you start with Mark, and he's a baby again, okay? First time I noticed that, I was like, wait a minute, I already read this. So there's four accounts of Jesus' life. I'm probably the only one that's ever happened to, but there you go, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then Acts is actually the second part of Luke. And so Acts is, uh, picks up the story and talks about how the early church operated and started to spread the actions of the first disciples of Jesus, or the Acts. Uh, the next section is a group of letters. This is the bulk of the New Testament. And these are written by early Jesus followers to Christian communities all over the Mediterranean Rim. Uh, 13 of them are written by a man named Paul. Uh, Jesus has a brother named James who wrote one. Peter wrote two, creatively titled First and Second Peter. <laughs> and then you'll never guess how many John wrote. Three. There you go. And then, uh, and then there's a letter called Jude, um, which of course inspired the Beatles song, Hey Jude. That's right. Uh, so you've got the narratives, those first five, then you have the letters in the middle, and then the last book of the Bible sort of stands apart on its own, the book of Revelation. This is a type of literature called apocalyptic. And what you have recorded in Revelation is a vision from Jesus to John, Jesus' disciple, when he's an old man on an island called Patmos, and it's a message to 13 churches in modern-day Turkey 
to encourage them during a challenging time. And he also talks about what happens sort of at the end of the world. So that's kind of exciting stuff. You can look forward to that. Um, yeah, don't jump ahead, though. You'll get there eventually. Right. So uh, to get us going with our conversation for today, I want to tell you about an encounter I had at a coffee shop in Holland, Michigan, many moons ago. Now, you know Holland, Michigan, land of tulips, land of Klompen. Some of you have some Dutch blood. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. You with me on this? Yeah. Uh, I had been uh, the previous Sunday at a church in Holland teaching, and while I was there, I learned that Dutch people don't respond well to jokes about Dutch people. It was like, cricket, cricket, and so I thought, okay, we're moving on. Yeah, so anyway, uh, I went out to this church, and I began to teach, and part of the teaching, I had to build some rapport with people, so I told a little bit of my story uh, that I was a pre-med student at the University of Michigan, and then when I graduated, um, I went to medical school for like two weeks, and then ended up you know, going into ministry and, and spending my life building a local church. And then I talked about some really great Jesus-y stuff. Uh, but I received a phone call the day after I taught from an attorney who had been at the church that evening. And he said, man, I would love to meet with you. I have a question for you. And it's, it's a question that I think you might be uniquely qualified to answer based on your story. Like your, your, what you talked about with Jesus, that was great. But like, I, something about your story really fascinates me. So I went to Holland, and we went to JP's Coffee and Tea, kind of a fun place, and we sat down at a booth, and he began to explain. He said, you know, I get the sense that you're a little like me in that you're analytical and you're sort of skeptical by nature, because medical students generally are analytical and a bit skeptical by nature. And I said, yep, that, that's probably fair. And he said, and yet, somehow you came to peace enough with the questions, the big questions about faith and life in Jesus, that you were willing to leave medical school, which is a pretty secure path, and step into church leadership. So he said, my question is, how did you come to peace with those questions enough to do what you did? Because he said, I would love to come to peace with my questions. I've carried them my whole life. I've been a church attender. I read the Bible. But he's like, I just keep getting tripped up on the same sorts of questions. He's like, stuff that happens in the Jesus story doesn't seem to happen to me, and I don't know what to do with all my questions. So kind of like if you say, well, what was he really asking? We'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this. How can a rational person find peace with their questions? Is that possible? And what I shared with him then is a bit what I want to share with you today, because I don't think he's the only one that has these questions. And in fact, the doubts that rise up in us often can keep us from crossing the line of faith. And so if you're here with us today and you have those questions and you have the sense that there's this life that God would have for you if you get to the other side of the questions, my hope is today's big idea will help you make steps towards coming to peace with your questions. And the answer sort of goes like this. The fact that we have a New Testament at all affirms something absolutely amazing, and it is our big idea for today. It goes like this. Without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament. Without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament. It literally changed everything, and I believe this reality, if you ground yourself in it, it really does reframe your questions and reframe your doubts. It might even be an end run around them. That was a football reference, Super Bowl fans. There you go. Okay, so to help you see what I mean, I want to remind you that 2,000 years ago, some women went to visit a tomb where Jesus had been placed, and when they got there, the tomb was empty. 
It's not what they were expecting. It's not what anybody was expecting. You see, it sort of disrupted their expectations with regards to who Jesus was. And then that happened again when the same women had a conversation with a resurrected Jesus. And then they went back and they told the 12 disciples about it. They said, we've seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. He's back. And the evening of that first Easter Sunday, if you ask me, you know, where were those first disciples? I would tell you that they were in a room in the city of Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus had been crucified. And they were confused and they were scared and they were frustrated and they weren't sure what to do. Because they had been the inner circle of the most powerful man that had ever stepped foot on planet Earth. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was God's son. He was the one sent by God to rescue the people of Israel from the Roman Empire. That's who they believed he was. And they believed that the last week of his life, when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, they believed that was his coming out, right? I am the Messiah. I am the one. People lined the streets with palm branches basically saying, it's time. You're our leader. It's time for Roman rule to end. God has finally sent us the Messiah. And they believed Jesus would ascend to the throne of Israel, would restore Israel to prominence and prosperity on the world stage, and they were going to be the inner circle to the king. That's what they believed. But then Jesus had been betrayed by one of his closest friends. He'd been arrested. He'd been falsely accused. He'd been tried and convicted. And then they watched their leader, their teacher, the one who they believed was the Messiah, the Son of God. They watched him brutally murdered on a Roman cross. And when they stood and watched Jesus hang on the cross, you need to understand something. There were no Christians at the cross. Because at the cross, the dream of who Jesus was for those first followers died. Because sons of God can't be crucified. That's just not how the story is supposed to go. And so that first Easter Sunday evening, the disciples are disoriented, they're confused, and they're frustrated. And it's kind of worse because they did hear some rumors that, that Jesus had been seen. And, and Jesus had said that he would rise again, but they thought he was speaking metaphorically. And half the stuff Jesus said before he came back didn't make a lot of sense to him. So they thought, well, that must just be metaphor. But now they, have these, they hear these rumors, and they've gone, and a few of them have stood in the empty tomb. But they're hiding, and they're scared. And John, a Jesus follower who was there, recorded this evening for us, his memories of it. Here's what he tells us. He says, on the evening of that first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, and just pause a second, their doors are locked because they're terrified. They never imagined that Jesus would end up hanging on a cross, and their suspicion is that as his followers, if the Jewish religious leaders really want to get rid of the Jesus movement, they might be next. And at any moment, soldiers may come busting down their door to accuse them of stealing the body of Jesus. So they were terrified. John continues. He says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, which I love how it's kind of nonchalant. Like, here we were just kind of talking, and then, boop, there's Jesus, right? Like, John wrote this for us decades later. 
after he had had time to process everything he'd seen and everything that he'd heard, and he doesn't take the space here to bring us into that moment emotionally, but Jesus' words to his disciples give us a bit of a clue. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Say, why did Jesus say peace be with you? Because I think they freaked out, right? Because in my experience and your experience and their experience, dead people generally stay dead. So they were expecting not Jesus to show up and to say peace be with you. I think a few of them may have had to take a moment and change their undergarments. I'm just, you know, right? They never imagined. And I think this is why Jesus does what he does next. He says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So if you're unfamiliar with the story, Jesus, when he hangs on a cross, nails go through his hands, and a Roman soldier at one point pierces his side. And he wants to say to them, listen, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a vapor. I'm not an imposter. It's really me. I'm, I'm, I'm back. And the disciples, John tells us, were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Their emotion immediately switches from fear to joy. Now, nothing about their situation has changed. They're still afraid of the Romans. They're still afraid of the Jewish leaders, and yet Jesus is with them, and that changes everything. He's, he's back. John continues his account. Jesus said, peace be with you. He says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, you thought this was the end. You thought the story was over, but this is only the beginning. Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just complete something. It launches something. The disciples are commissioned in this moment to take the message of what God had accomplished in Jesus to the world. Jesus was God's agents on planet earth in a broken world, and now so to the disciples, we're going to be agents of God in a broken world. And you say, okay, well, okay, so they got the clarity, that's the mission. Is that where, that where it started? No, because not all of the disciples were in that locked room. As John's account continues, he tells us one guy in particular wasn't there, and he's kind of a famous guy, a man named Thomas. He says, now Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But see, those words would have hit Thomas just like the words of the women who'd seen Jesus hit the first disciples. So Thomas responds, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I want to. I want to with all my being. I want to believe that the story isn't over, but I need to see it for myself. And so Thomas stands in this story for you if you're the skeptical type. He's the one who says, I need evidence in order to believe. And, and I love how this moment was captured by Baroque master Caravaggio. Check out, the, check out this, uh, this picture. Isn't that just awesome? Uh, the light. And the, the only problem I have with this picture is that uh, Caravaggio uh, would have, or Caravaggio, um, Thomas would have been in his teens when this moment happened. Um, and he's much, much older in the picture, but I'm sure Caravaggio knew what he was doing more than I, an art critic, would do that. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> So Thomas puts his hand in the side of Jesus, and he says um, this. He says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. It's like Thomas had personal doubts about the resurrection, and encountering the resurrected Jesus, he makes a profession of faith personally. John continues. He says, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. He says, blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believe. And right there, Jesus is talking about you and he's talking about me. He's talking about people living thousands of years later, halfway around the world, who come to peace with the reality of the resurrection. And Jesus predicts this would happen. And he says, if you get there, that is a, a huge, a huge blessing. But it does raise a question. How can a rational person believe in something that they have not seen? And this for me is, is where the story gets a bit personal because for me as an analytical type, I said, okay, I just have to follow the evidence wherever it leads. We, we must consider the integrity of the witnesses. And if the witnesses are strong, then their testimony is, is trustworthy. I, I brought a prop I used last Easter. It's in my office at all times. Um, it is my Easter chain. Um, some of you re may remember it. I uh, purchased it at one Kingsland hardware store back in the day. And I went in and they said, how much chain would you like? And I said, I don't know, about you know, this much. And they said, well, what are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I'm going to bring it to my church. I'm a pastor. And they said, what sort of church do you run in there? And I said, you should come. We have popcorn. It's great. You know, so... Yeah. So anyway, um, the chain reminds me of the unbroken chain of witnesses going all the way back to the resurrection. So if I'm the last link in the chain or you're the last link in the chain, someone told you about Jesus and someone had told them about Jesus and someone told them about Jesus and someone told them about Jesus and all the way back to those first disciples. And if the first link in the chain is strong, then the chain of witnesses can be trusted. And, and so if I'm skeptical and I'm analytical, I would ask the question, okay, can we trust those first eyewitnesses. So let's talk for a minute about the first disciples. A question that I would ask would be, did they become rich and famous because of their belief in the resurrection? Did the disciples' life turn dramatically for the better? Was there anything selfishly that they gained by perpetuating the resurrection story? And the answer to that is no. In fact, the disciples spent their life telling people about Jesus and met resistance at every turn from the Jewish establishment and from the Roman establishment. And if you said to me, well, well, how, how long did they live and how did they die? I would answer, not very long, and they died really, really brutally. In fact, I, um, I went out on the internet and did a little research, and uh, this is what church history tells us, that Peter, Andrew, Philip, Thaddeus, and Simon were all crucified. James, Jesus' brother, was beaten and stoned to death. Bartholomew was beheaded, Matthew was stabbed in the back, Thomas was pierced with, with four spears. And many of these disciples were offered a chance at the moment that they were convicted and about to be executed to denounce the resurrection and live, and they chose to remain faithful to their message. They could not deny what they had seen. They believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead, and they believed that that was a truth worth dying for. And, and notice that the disciples didn't even simply die for something they believed. I mean, people do that all the time in history. They died for something that they saw, something unbelievable, and yet something undeniable. So this was the message that went out into the ancient world. This was the message that began to spread its way through the Roman Empire and around the Mediterranean Rim. This is the message that skeptical analytical types 2,000 years ago raised their hand and said, okay, he really came back from the dead because generally dead people stay dead. I mean, I'm not, how do, you, how, do you, how do we know? How can we put our faith in that which we have not seen? And so in the New Testament, you have letters 
written from some of those first followers of Jesus to Christian communities living all over the Mediterranean Rim. And in one of these letters, and you'll find this over and over again, but in one of these letters, a pastor named Paul is writing to Christians living in Greece in a town called Corinth. Here's what he says about the resurrection. And remember, he's responding to their questions. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And and then the 12, he continues, he says, and then the 12, and he says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So he says, if you have doubts and if you're willing to take a trip, I can bring you to Jerusalem and I can introduce you to people who were there in the community when Jesus appeared to them very much alive. And if you have time, I'll introduce you to James, who is Jesus' brother. Now, Jesus and James knew each other, James knew Jesus his whole life. And you start to think, okay, and you thought your older brother was perfect. Yeah, so Jesus knows James, James was Jesus his whole life, and James comes to believe that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God and the Savior of the world. And I, we've said this before, but I just ask you, what would it take for you to believe that your older brother was God's Son, the anointed Savior of the world, right? I have a brother. I'll tell you what it would take. He'd have to come back from the dead, okay? And that, that's just what, because we had some, there were rough moments growing up, you know. So, so the writers of the New Testament were totally confident that this would happen, that this happened. And they would call hundreds of witnesses to testify, not to what they believed, but to what they actually had seen. Later in that same letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Paul's playing poker and he didn't play poker, All of his chips are on the resurrection. He said, this thing rises or falls with the resurrection. The whole thing. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. How did Paul know Jesus came back from the dead? Because Paul came face to face himself with the resurrected Jesus. Friends, this is very compelling evidence for the resurrection. In fact, the existence of the New Testament is compelling evidence for the resurrection because without a resurrection, no one would have written anything about Jesus because they had hoped he was something, they thought he was something, they believed he was something, but then he died. And again, sons of God don't die, Messiahs can't be crucified. But see, when Jesus comes back, the church that carries his name is born and the truth spreads around the world. So if I'm analytical and I'm skeptical, I said, okay, um, so as I, best I can reason it, there's five options as far as the resurrection. So how do we know the resurrection really happened? Well, let's just consider the options. First option, Jesus never existed. But the challenge with this belief is that you cannot find a credible historian who would affirm that suggestion. There is simply too much evidence that Jesus existed. Jesus, the rabbi, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the one crucified under the Roman Empire. Uh, n- number two option, the disciples stole the body and faked a resurrection, which again is very conceivable, uh, but the challenge of that is how far then would they take the lie? Because they gain nothing 
and sacrifice everything. So if we're honest, that's not a great option either. The third idea would be that the Jewish leaders stole the body, uh, which is an option, but then these are the same Jewish leaders who days earlier had Jesus killed to crush the movement that carried his name. And so for them to sort of throw gasoline on the fires of the movement doesn't really make any sense. Uh, the fourth option would be the tomb wasn't empty. Um, the challenge is it would be impossible to get a movement based on a resurrection off the ground in the same city where the person who had supposedly been resurrected was still buried. I mean, Rome or the Jews could simply say, resurrected Jesus, no, he's actually right here. And everyone would have to go, oh yeah, right, good point. Yeah. So those are, your, those are your four options, right? And then you come to the unbelievable, undeniable fifth option that God actually physically raised Jesus from the dead. And so back at the coffee shop, the attorney asked me a really great question. How does a scientifically minded person deal with the doubts that inevitably rise when you consider the story of Jesus? And, and my response to him is our big idea for today. It's that you need to focus on the one event that changed everything. The New Testament records the memories of those first disciples, and they were confident about what they had seen and what they had heard. After the resurrection, they went back and rethought everything they experienced with Jesus and everything Jesus said. Because anybody who can predict their own resurrection, death and resurrection, and pull it off, you're just going to kind of, everything they said suddenly gets more important. Would you agree? Right. So then all of a sudden, they begin to write down everything they can remember about Jesus because people had to know because this changes everything. There, a couple of weeks ago, I, I read a quote from a book called The History of Christianity, and I want to read it again in this context because I think it just gets right where we're at today. Uh, it's a historian from Notre Dame uh, named David Bentley Hart. Here's what he says. He says, It was not long after Christ's death that his disciples were triumphantly proclaiming that he had risen from the tomb and was living once more. It was an incredible claim, obviously, but almost as incredible was the speed with which Jesus' followers recovered from the devastating loss of their leader, regrouped, and began to preach a common message, and that a message of victory. Friends, everything changed 2,000 years ago when Jesus returned from the dead and launched a revolution that has changed lives and continues to change lives all around the world. Without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament. And starting tomorrow, you get to read the story for yourselves. Would you stand? I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're just, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that you have offered us an invitation to believe and you've provided incredible evidence that you raised your son from the grave. Though unbelievable, it's also undeniable. And, and so I ask that as we open your story, you would speak to each of us. You would help us see the love that you have for us, how far you went to make sure that we could be right with you. We thank you for the disciples, for their courage, for their witness. Most of all, we thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your son as light and darkness to make a way where there was no way and to show us 
the way and the truth and the light. And so I ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part two of the story of us.